Um, you know, we probably all have in one way or another uh, things that ring true in, in my mind immediately are those times when you're at the grocery store, you know, and there's like uh, one checker open and there should be ten, and the line's long, and, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're just about to put your, your items that you're purchasing, not a lot, just a couple things, maybe a carton of eggs and some milk and bread maybe, and uh, you're just about to put them on the thing and, and they call for a second checker and you're sitting there going, okay. I know what the, that, that, that the person that comes out is going to be the second checker. Checker is going to come over to this line and is going to say, next in line, please, I'll help you down here, right? I mean, that's what they all do. And you're standing there and you don't know whether to put your stuff down or not because you're waiting. You don't know how long it's going to take this other checker. And then you realize the person in front of you is fiddling with the ATM thing. You're thinking, okay, I'm going to head toward the other where, where you just take a wild guess where you think this checker is probably going to go. So you step out of line. And the person shows up at the checkout counter that you're not standing at. And somebody else, even though they know that you're in front of them, in line, beelines it over there and gets in front of you in the checkout line. I don't know about you, but that just ticks me off sometimes. You know, you just want to take that carton of eggs and say, Hey, Dumbo, you know, I was first. Back up. Um, But we don't. You know, we, we kind of be calm and cool. But inside, in our heart, we really wish that somebody would say something. Excuse me, I think this person was in front of you. Uh, excuse me, you know, whatever it is, but we, we want to be next. That's, that's what the right thing was at the time. Or when you're waiting at a, an event or at a, a, a parking lot or something, waiting to get out and you're the next person to get out and, and someone comes and just cuts you off. You know, you, you just want to get out of your car and shout and scream sometimes because that's not the right thing to do. You see this happen a lot at gas stations. You know, I was down here at this gas station just the other day filling my car up or waiting to fill my car up, and, and they're on uh, Jefferson and whatever the street is, Alameda. And as I was waiting there, um, you know, you can't kind of pull into their parking lot because there's not a big parking lot there, so I was backed up with... Uh, a car behind me on Alameda there waiting to turn into the, the parking lot. And so the, the person that was in front of me apparently didn't decide to go to the front pump. They went to the back pump, which made a lot of sense. And so they get out there pumping their car. So I was kind of irritated at that. I'm thinking, you know, there's a pump in front of you. Just pull up another five feet. But they didn't do that. And so they're filling the car, and I'm being okay with that, listening to the radio. And just about the time, you know, I must have been listening to the radio a little too long because I wasn't paying attention, I guess. And all of a sudden, I look up, and there's no car there. I mean, the guy had actually got in the car and took off and, you know, kind of left an open spot. So I go to go. Well, you know, somebody's turning left at that red light onto Alameda, just does a yui, and just pulls right in front of me at the gas pump. And I was like, hey, you know, like kind of tap my horn a little bit, you know. And then he realized kind of what he did, I think. And the guy behind me was livid. He was really honking his horn. I'm like, oh, you know, it wasn't my fault. I mean, the guy was barely out of the, the pumps and this guy pulled in there. But I remember when we got out of the, you know, the car, I was really irritated at that. And luckily he pulled up to the second pump. So I did have room to be, you know, to fill my car. And so we both get out and I'm, you know, I'm kind of looking at him and he's kind of looking at me and, and then finally he said these words, you know, hey, I'm sorry if I cut you off. I, I didn't mean that. I didn't, I didn't know you were waiting in line there. So immediately, as soon as those words, you know, it's like, okay, well, what do you do now? Say, like, oh, no problem. You know, so no big deal, you know. I mean, I wanted to rip the guy's head off when I get out of the car, but I thought, no, that's not the Christian thing to do, you know. Just read it now in the papers, you know, pastor in jail for assault at gas station. But we have all been there and done that. And, you know, sometimes life isn't fair. And, and today in our passage, Jesus calls us to really be perfect in love. And even toward our enemies, by loving our enemies. And uh, we read that passage out of Romans 12 this morning, and that spoke of that. But really there's been, I don't think, any other passage in Scripture that has been... Um, easier to summarize than what we're looking at right now in people's minds. And it's probably one of the most misconstrued passages of Scripture in a lot of people's minds as well. And it's very much misunderstood by many people. And there's a lot of recognized phrases in here that you're going to see. 
You know, how many times have you ever heard, eye for eye, tooth for tooth? You've heard that. How many times have you ever heard, just turn the other cheek? You've heard that. Go the second mile. You've heard that. Love your enemies. These are all phrases that Jesus uses in this text we're about to look at in Matthew 5. And even people who've never set foot inside the church have heard those phrases somewhere along the line. But I guess the question for us this morning is, well, first of all, what do they mean? And then how do we apply them today, almost 2,000 years after they were spoken by our Lord himself? And obviously in the text here, Jesus is referring to you know, the laws and the customs of the day of that specific culture. I mean, we see that kind of clearly as we read down through some of these things. But his words do apply equally as well to us today in the 21st century because of the simple reason that there's still this this desire inside us for revenge. We want our pound of flesh for our ounce of offense. That's just the way we are as humans. And it's just as much... As an issue today, you hear all these crimes about road rage and all sorts of things going on over a simple, stupid argument that started and then it turned into something that was just incredible. And even James says, why are there fights and quarrels among you because you, know, you, you see something you don't have it and you want it. All right? Whether it's a spot in a grocery store line or a spot at a gas station, or running to a a store to get the last item that's on the shelf and someone nabs it right before you have a chance to grab it. It doesn't matter what it is. When someone does you wrong, there's something inside us that we want to take advantage of that person who bullies us or takes advantage of us. We want to get even, and even probably most of us would say we want to get a little more than even. (laughs) We don't want to just get even. We want to get a little more. We want that person to suffer a little more than what we just suffered. And it sounds silly, but that's kind of what happens. And so look at the passage this morning in, in Matthew chapter 5, and beginning in verse 38. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said. Once again, he starts a new kind of section here on a different topic. And uh, he says, you have heard that it was said, and, and we already studied this, and we know that when he says that, he's not necessarily talking about the Old Testament law that was given by God, but he's talking about the Old Testament law that was given by God that was taken by the Pharisees and the Sadducees of the day and misconstrued and kind of uh, brought down to their level so they could um, obey it and feel good about themselves and therefore have a self-righteousness because they were obeying God's law in their mind as it was related to them by their teachers. And so what he's saying here is you've heard it said by those who instructed you, you might say. He says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, when you, when you hear that, doesn't that just sound, yeah. You know, doesn't that sound harsh? That just sounds like, yeah, that's what we need. We need an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's what that means. Well, it's taken out of the Old Testament. It's taken directly out of the Old Testament, out of Exodus chapter 21 and Leviticus 24 and Deuteronomy 19. It's all in, in each one of those texts. And it re- relates and reflects this principle that was not only in the Mosaic law, but even in the law of, of uh, Hammurabi back, then, back in his code, way back before even Moses was around. And it was this, this kind of this idea that it required the punishment exactly to match the crime. That was the idea that this, this code was taken from. And you've heard a lot of times the idea tit for tat. Well, out of Latin, that's kind of where we get that, 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 that idea. It comes from this principle. Um, you know, what, you're, what you give out, that's what you're going to get. It's that kind of an idea. And this great Babylonian king was the earliest record they have of it. But the principle was in wide use long before probably even that time. And here in God's word, we see it in Exodus 21. If you turn over there with me, Exodus 21, and look at verse 24. Exodus chapter 21. beginning in verse uh, 24. 
I'll begin in verse 23. That's being the sentence. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life. By the way, that's just talking about a um, someone who gives who's pregnant and, and harm comes to their child. So if you want to know anywhere in the Bible where the Bible claims that a fetus is a human being and is, you know, if you murder a woman, pregnant woman, and her unborn child, it is counted as a just that, a child. It's not just a, a fetus as... Um, some would have you to believe. But he goes on there, and he says, verse 24, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and then go on. It says, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And so we hear it being said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but that's the whole thing in the whole context. Even down to a bruise for a bruise. Leviticus 24.20 says a fracture for a fracture. So if you hit somebody and fracture their jaw, well, you're going to get your jaw fractured. See, and you have to understand that in the law of Moses, to understand the context of what Jesus is talking to these people about, and even in the code of uh, Hammurabi, the principal punishment to match the crime had a couple different purposes. There was a reason why they imposed this eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The first was to be a, uh, uh, a, a warning to anybody who would commit this crime in the future. All right? It was a way of preventing crime in the future. When a person is punished for wrongdoing, Deuteronomy 19.20 says, the rest will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. See, that's part of our problem with our society today. We think somehow when someone does something wrong that it's not because of that person doing it wrong. It's, well, it's probably the way they were raised or maybe they had bad parents. or We want to blame it on everything but the person doing the crime. And it's just, it's, it's unfortunate that that's how it's developed, but that's where we're at today. And so when people commit a crime, they just shrug their shoulders and discuss, you know, are you going to plead guilty or not guilty? I'm going to plead not guilty. Get off. I mean, that's the, the mentality that we live in. You know, I heard last week that, it was in Wisconsin or somewhere, the, the, uh, the program for child molesters and those that would harm young people in a sexual manner, in a deviant manner, their answer to, to part of their rehabilitation is to gather these guys up and then take them to a circus where there's lots of kids or take them to a ball game where there's a lot of children and let them sit there through the whole thing and, and hopefully that somehow they can deal with this urge when they get out of prison or when they get done with the program the most ridiculous thing you've ever heard of. That'd be like taking an alcoholic and saying, now we don't want you to drink, but we're going to a bar. And you're just going to sit there at the bar while everybody drinks around you, and sooner or later you're going to be cured. It's ridiculous. And there's a big, you know, kind of stink about that in the news. But that's what we fall into. Rather than saying, hey, you know what? This person has done something wrong. They need to be punished. You know, uh, I heard one commentator this last week on the radio say, you know, in a lot of Muslim nations, they don't put up with this stuff. You know, you steal something, what do they do? Your hand goes out there and they lop your hand off. That's just the way it is. You're caught in in some kind of a, um, you know, sexually immoral situation, you're stoned to death. I mean, they they don't put up with this kind of behavior, period. I mean, of course, they're out there cutting people's, lopping people's heads off. But, you know, so, uh, you know, you go figure. But I'm just saying that, you know, we need to kind of look at what God's Word has to say about this. And one of the first reasons that He gave this kind of a law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, was to prevent wrongdoing in the future. Um, The second purpose was to prevent excessive punishment based on personal vengeance. In other words, when a crime was committed in the Old Testament, you couldn't just go out and say, okay, that guy stole my, my dog. Well, I'm going to go over and kill his cow. It just didn't work that way. You, you weren't allowed to do that. You weren't allowed to recover things based on personal vengeance or angry retaliation. Lamech actually boasted of this in Genesis 5, 20, or Genesis 4, 23, 24. He says, For I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. 
See, and that's the whole reason this law was put into place. So the punishment was matched for the crime. It wasn't to exceed it. It was not to exceed the harm done by the offense itself. See, and that was wise because God knows our hearts. God knows when somebody does something wrong to us, we want to do something wrong to them, and even more so. That's just the nature of our wicked heart. But it's interesting also that each time that this code, this law is mentioned, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and so forth, in, in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy 19, Leviticus 24, and Exodus 21, each time it's dealing with basically Israel's civil law. It's dealing with law at a civil level, not as an individual personal level. It has nothing to do with individual personals, persons. It has to do with the civil uh, carrying out of punishment. Now, there were occasions when punishment could be carried out by the victim. They allowed for that. But it was always under the responsibility of some judges or some civil authority. You weren't just allowed to, as a personal citizen, go, hey, that guy scratched my car, well, I'm going to, you know, smash his car. Uh, We get in trouble for that kind of stuff, as you do today, right? I mean, if, if, if someone, if your neighbor comes over and throws eggs at your house, just covers the front of your house with eggs. Do you think you'd get in trouble if you took a, a bunch of eggs and went over to their house? And Yeah, you would. You would both be in trouble. Why? Because you're breaking a civil law. And you don't have the right, when someone breaks that law toward you, to take matters into your own hands and just discount any civil authority and say, hey, I'm just going to be a, a rogue agent here and go do what I want to do. A vigilante. God doesn't allow for that. And so the law of eye for eye, it was a just law because it matched the punishment to the offense. It was also a merciful law because it limited the, the ability of, of the human heart to seek any further retaliation against somebody. It said, hey, if, if something happened to you on this basis, well, civil law says this, and this will be exacted to them according to the law. And it also helped because it protected society by restraining wrongdoing. So this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, you know, we think of it as some kind of vengeance thing. We go out and somebody pokes our eye out, well, we plop their eye out too. It doesn't work that way. That's not what the nature of the law was. And usually, just because of selfish overreaction, that's the natural response that we have to, um, you know, someone offending us. We want our rights and we want to get even and even more than even. And human vengeance is never satisfied with justice. It never is. I've sat in court cases sometimes where, you know, someone was even murdered. And, you know, the person is, is you know, sentenced to life imprisonment. But because the justice system, the way it is, is it really justice? No, under good behavior, they'll, you know, get out. And, and you know, you, you, you really grieve for the victims in the case. And they walk away feeling, you know, I thought this would be a great day. This guy's convicted. But you know what? I, I just feel empty because there's nothing I can do. And it's almost like unless, you know, they could go over and, and put their hands around the person's neck and just strangle the life out of them, then they would finally satisfy that human vengeance that we all have inside us. But God kind of restricts vengeance, as we read this morning in um, uh, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Vengeance is whose? Is God's. God's, yeah. He says, it's mine, says the Lord. And so it's very important for us to realize that, is when wrongs are done against us, that we don't necessarily have the right to just go out and do whatever we feel like doing in response to that. Even over in... Um, uh, Hebrews 10.30, it says the same thing. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Okay, the, the Lord will judge his people, and it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. All right, that's where uh, that vengeance has to be placed, at God's feet. And God's command for individuals, on a, uh, not on a civil level, but on an individual level, it's always been the same throughout. It's been consistent throughout the Bible. If your enemy is hungry, what are we supposed to do? Give him food. If he's thirsty, what are we supposed to do? Give him water to drink. Now that flies in the face of our human kind of understanding of what we want to do. But that's what the Word of God says to do. 
No individual has the right to say, you know what, I'm going to do to him just like he did to me. I will render to the man according to his word. It doesn't work that way. That's God's problem. In no instance in the Old Testament was there an individual allowed to take the law into their own hands and apply it personally. Now, to understand what's going on here in Matthew 5, see, that's exactly what the rabbis and the religious leaders of the day did. They took that law, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, that principle, and they said, hey, you know what? We're just going to take this out of the civil people's hands, the jury and the, the judge and all those people, and we're going to put it in the hands of the people. So all of a sudden you had all these people going around seeking vengeance, seeking retaliation based on this. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Instead of properly acknowledging that this was to be understood as a limit on punishment, they basically used it as a mandate for carrying out their retaliation or their vengeance on people. That's what they did. And it's been very often viewed wrongly throughout history. What God gave as a restriction on civil courts, Jewish tradition basically turned into this personal license to go out and get your pound of flesh. That's what they did. And really, it really fed the whole self-centered righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees that took the law of God and just turned it into a, you know, a mockery, really. And so as we begin to look at this this, this passage, there's a lot of things in here that could be misunderstood. For example, look at verse 39 where he says, Do not resist an evil person. Do not resist an evil person. Does that mean that we should be completely passive and just let people walk over us? We're a doormat. That we should do nothing to protect our lives or even the lives of our family or our children? Someone breaks into your home, are you supposed to just lay there and, okay, well, I can't resist you because that's what the Bible says. So do whatever you want. Is that what Jesus meant? Should we never stand up for our own rights? I mean, stop and think about it logically. When Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple, do you think he was being very passive? I don't think he was being very passive. He wasn't just going, oh, we'll all have the, you always have the evil people with you. Just let them do whatever they're going to do. When Paul demanded his rights as a Roman citizen after being on trial in Acts 16, he wasn't being passive. And when Jesus and Paul encouraged believers to confront those who sinned in order to help them find forgiveness, they weren't encouraging them to be passive. Jesus and the apostles continually opposed evil at every turn at every, and, and, and used every means and resource to do it. Jesus resisted the, 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 the desecrating of God's temple by making a scourge of cords, a whip, and he physically drove out the sacrifice sellers and the money changers of the day because they were, they were misrepresenting what God was all about. So it says, do not resist an evil person. Well, if you believe that just the way it's stated, you'd have a problem with James 4, 7 or 1 Peter 5, 9 where it says, we're to resist who? The devil. That's about an evil person as you're going to get. And so all the evil that he stands for, he inspires in people, all that stuff, the proper resisting of evil includes even resisting it within the church. We're not just to passively sit by while sin occurs in the church. When Peter compromised with the, the Judaizers, Judaizers, remember, and Paul opposed him, it said to his face he opposed him in Galatians 2.11 because he stood condemned. Where there's immorality in the congregation, God says, 1 Corinthians 5.13, um, remove the wicked men from among yourselves. We don't just passively allow evil people to do whatever they want. Jesus said that a believer whose sin should first be reproved in private, Matthew 18, and then before two or three other church members, if they don't repent, 
And if He refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if He refuses to listen even to the church, let Him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. In other words, you're putting Him out of the church. Excommunication. Church discipline. Hopefully it never gets to that point. 1 Timothy 5.20 says, This should be done in the presence of all so that the rest may be fearful. See, the problem is in a lot of churches, none of that ever goes on. So you have choir members sleeping with each other and all sorts of craziness going on in the church and nobody says anything. Well, who are we to judge? You know, God is love. Just pray for that brother or that sister and turn the other way, turn the other cheek. And you hear all these things. But the Bible says, no, you need to confront sin where it happens to protect the purity of Christ's church. That's what we're called to do. See, that's why it's, it's nice sometimes to go to a big church where you got, you know, a couple thousand people and you can kind of slip in late and sit there and listen and slip out early and, and nobody even says, hey, you know, notice last week you, you weren't here. Or, or, that's real comfortable for so many people. But when you're in a smaller congregation, you know, and you've got personal relationships going on and you don't, you know, you don't show up for, uh, you know, Sunday meeting or, or group or whatever, somebody's going to say something. Because they care for you. And some people don't like that. But that's what the church is all about. In this principle of non-resistance, you hear this misapplied here all the time. And, and it's, it's important to understand that it does not apply to governmental authorities. That's purely, clearly he's talking here on a personal basis. You do not resist an evil person. It's not talking about government authorities here. Matter of fact, Paul says that civil government is a minister of God for your good. That's why we're to, to, be, to call, you know, to obey all things as unto the Lord. In Romans 13, verse 4, Romans 13, verse 4 says clearly, For he is God's minister, those in, in rulers over you, because God puts them there, he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. But if he does not bear, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. See, that's the role of civil government. Unfortunately, you, you know, they probably can fight their way out of a paper bag, I mean, the way they, they act today, but that's the role of government, is to protect the law-abiding citizens that live under the reign of, of civil government. And God puts those people in authority over us. First Peter chapter 2 says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and the praise of those who do right. See, for the sake of God's righteousness, as well as for the sake of human justice, believers are obligated not only to uphold the law that's placed over them, but to insist that others do it as well. That's why I don't think we have a lot of room when it comes to acts of civil disobedience. I don't think that's biblical. Now, obviously, if it flies in the face of something that God has clearly shown us in His Word, you know, okay, you can't pray anymore. You can't, you know, teach the Word anymore. You can't do all those things. Well, then, obviously, you're going to have to choose to break that law. And when you break that law, you shouldn't be crying when they haul you off to prison. That's, that's what... That's what the civil justice says happens. Well, then, you gotta, if you're going to be willing to put yourself out there, then you have to be willing to put yourself under the rule of authority. And that's exactly what happens, Hassan was mentioning in his prayer, in nations all across the world. People are persecuted for their faith. We don't have the slightest idea what it means to be persecuted. You know, we think that if we're at the water cooler and, and we bring, invite somebody to church and they call us a Jesus freak and walk away, oh, you know, we come to prayer meeting, I was persecuted today at work, you know, I invited somebody to church and they called me a Jesus freak, oh my goodness. That's not persecution. Okay, that, that's not even near persecution. 
We don't have the foggiest idea what persecution is in our country, unfortunately. But we need to make sure that we are living up to what God has called us to do. Now, you notice here that he says, resist the evil, do not resist the evil person, all right, in our text. And that idea, it means to set against or to oppose. And in the context here, we need to understand it, that it's something done to us personally by someone who is evil. Jesus is speaking here not so much of what's being done to you by the person being evil, but it's talking about seeking your own kind of vengeance out on them as a result of what they did to you. He's speaking of personal resentment. He's speaking of spite. He's speaking of vengeance. Um, and it's the same thing that we read this morning in our Scripture reading in Romans, uh, Romans 12. Paul said, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. doesn't matter if it's your uncle or the nasty neighbor next. doesn't matter who it is. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. See, in this context, the word resist means some form of retaliation, personally. He's talking about revenge. He's not talking about self-preservation. Do you have the right to resist somebody that breaks into your house and you know is going to harm your family? You betcha you do. He's not talking about that. It's talking more on a personal level, on a way where someone has offended you, someone has done something wrong to you personally. And now you're looking for a way, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. They did this to me, now I'm going to go out and, and do personally to them, and even more so. It has that in mind. He's talking about revenge here, not self-preservation. He isn't telling us to be weak and passive and be like a piece of milk toast, you know, and just lay there while somebody hurts us or our family. He's telling us, don't be vindictive. I guess that's a good word to use. Another thing that's misapplied here, down in verse 42, all the way down there, I don't don't know if we read that or not, but verse 42, he says, give to someone who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So what does that mean? See, that's misapplied all the time. Does that mean that if you're a Christian banker and and you're someone from your church who's a Christian comes to you and wants to take out a big loan and you look at their credit and it's horrible, that you still have to give them the loan? Is that what he's talking about? Does this mean that you have to loan money to someone who has taken advantage of you over and over again? Does it mean that every time you're approached by a panhandler on the street that this is saying that every time you have to give them all your money? I don't think so. Because this commandment doesn't relieve us of our obligation to manage our resources responsibly. See, it's our responsibility to practice generosity, but it's also our responsibility to practice some form of discernment. Or in verse 48 where he says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What in the world does that mean? That sounds impossible right off the start. I mean, you know, after I read that, I thought, forget this. Be perfect? Are you kidding me? Do you think Jesus would ever command us to do something that we aren't capable of doing? He didn't command us to be all-powerful or to be all-knowing. Those things are beyond our grasp. We can't do that. But He told us to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And the Greek word there for perfect or perfection means to basically reach the intended end or completion. A good word is maturity. In other places in the Bible, that's how that's translated, maturity. In other words, a person is mature if he or she fulfills the purpose for which they were created. That's kind of the idea. And in this context, Jesus is saying that you can be perfect, you can be mature, you can fulfill your purpose in life, you can demonstrate your maturity by what? By loving your enemies. That's always the mature thing to do. We're never more like God than we love those who don't love us, right? Paul said in Romans 5.8, that God demonstrates, demonstrates His love toward us, and while we were what? 
all cleaned up and perfect? No. And while we were yet, what? Sinners. Christ died for us. See, I always like the idea in Christianity is one of the religions that you don't have to go and, and take a shower to get cleaned up before you come to God. That's not what He wants. He wants us to understand that we're filthy, that we're covered in sin sludge, and, and, and we need some cleansing. And as hard as we scrub, and, you know, have you ever been so dirty that you, you literally take one of those brushes that, you know, you clean the tires on the, on the car, and you, you try to get the dirt off? I remember one time when I was little, my nephew and I, I don't know why we did this, but we went down in the pond, and in our pond, we had this kind of a clay, muddy bottom. And it was a hot day, and... It's just, we were being stupid. So we took mud and we just covered our whole body, everything, with this mud. And then we went down in the bottom of our driveway. We kind of lived on Fairview Drive outside of town. And we had these two big white pillars in front of our house and kind of a long driveway we went to the house. We covered ourselves with mud. And then we went up and we sat on top of these things, on these pillars, on top of them, squatting down. And then when cars would go by, we'd go like this. Just weird. But I remember it got so, you know, caked on. I mean, there's a point where you hardly couldn't move and you went to stand up and it's like, oh my goodness. And you crack and the stuff would fall off. And I remember finally we went, up, went in the pond, dove back in the pond trying to get this stuff off. We got out of the pond and we're still brown. I mean, it went into our pores. And, and we went up and my sister-in-law, the one that had the heart attack, I remember her yelling at, what are you guys doing? You know, look at you, look at you, clean yourselves up. And I remember throwing a brush out. I don't care, but get cleaned up before you come in here. And I remember we were taking soap and, I mean, our skin was almost raw, but it still was kind of brownish clay looking. It was the, the worst feeling. No matter what we did, I couldn't get clean. And see, that's not what God expects us to do. He wants us to come to Him totally filthy, caked in mud, saying, okay, now that you know you're dirty, now I can clean you up. And He takes His super power washer and just zaps you, and you're incredibly clean from head to toe, as clean as you've ever been, and as clean as you'll ever be by the blood of Christ. In 1 John 4.19, it says, we love because what? He loved us first. Okay? So God demonstrates over and over in His Word that we're never more like God than we re- when we reach out in love to those who don't love us because that's exactly what He did. And so being perfect in this context here that Jesus mentions isn't attaining some sinless level of perfection that some believe because, you know, that's not what it's about. The kind of perfection Jesus is referring here to is being perfect, perfect, being mature in love. And when you, you're, you're perfect and you're mature in love, in God's love, you're able to reach out to those people who are offending you without seeking retaliation, loving your enemies. And we're going to talk about that a little more next week. But here, basically, I want to share with you just quickly four things as we kind of look through this text together. Four things that you can do to show that, you know what, you're going to love your enemies. Four things to reach out to your enemies with the love of Christ. The first thing there in verse 39, Matthew chapter 5, verse 39, he says, if someone... I tell you not to resist an evil person. And then he says, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. First principle here. All right? Don't respond with insults. Tit for tat doesn't work when it comes to Christianity. That's not what we're called to do. Now, I think here he's talking a little more than physical violence. Clearly. Because there's something about the right cheek. If I'm right-handed and I come up to you and I slap you on your right cheek, how am I going to do it? Do it with my back of my hand, right? Well, in their culture, there was probably nothing that was more demeaning. It was worse to be backhanded by somebody than if someone just took out a full you know, swing and nailed you in the face with their fist. That was okay. But don't ever backhand somebody. That just puts them down. That just demeans that person. It was one of the worst things you could do to somebody in public. 
It was almost twice as insulting as hitting a man with the palm of your hand. That's how they viewed it. And so Jesus said that when that happens, when someone insults you, here it's with the back of your hand. What's he saying? He says, don't return the insult. You don't give them a backhand. You don't retaliate. Is he saying that we should let people physically abuse us? No. That's not what he's talking about. His point is that we should refrain from trying to get even when someone insults us, however that may come to pass. And that's happened to all of us, sooner or later. It's happened. We've all been insulted. We've all probably been humiliated even publicly at times. I don't think I've ever just openly just punched somebody. Except I remember one time in elementary school and this kid's name was Mark Saucer. That was his name. And he was kind of a bully kind of a kid. And I don't know what went on in my mind that day, but I remember I was sit, sitting in, in Mrs. Uh, Kinder's English class. I think I was probably in fifth grade. And Mark Saucer walked by my desk, and I had a pile of books sitting by the desk, and I remember he kicked it, knocked it over. And I didn't like the kid anyway. I mean, we played together and stuff, but I just didn't like him. And I remember sitting there just getting angry. And I remember after class, I went over to him. I said, you and me in the bathroom now. I've never done any. I'm shy, right? I'm thinking, why am I doing I was just so angry. And, but when he did that, it was just a, a humiliating thing. It was an insult to me. And people saw it and kicked over my books. And I remember being nervous, and my friend's like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? We're sitting in there, you know, they had the urinals there, and, and we're standing there by the urinals, and, and Mark Saucer comes in, and he's like, yeah, what do you want, Converse or whatever? I'm like, come here, you know, and he walks over. And I just hauled off, just nailed him right in the face before he could even say anything, before I could say anything. And then we got in this little fight, but I got the best punch in. But I remember, you know, he had kind of this bloody nose and stuff, and we went to the principal's office, and and I remember sitting there just turning on the charm. I don't know what happened, you know. He attacked me. And, you know, I think I lied my way out of it. And he got in trouble. But the, the, the weird thing was is I'm thinking, I, I had never hit anybody. Nor, and I remember even after that point being in a conversation with somebody and walking away saying, you know, this is stupid. Probably because I would have lost. But just saying, you know, I'm not going to go there with you. And... And, but there's something to say that when your dignity is insulted or it's hurt, you want to lash out. That's just who we are. That's who God has created us to be. And all I'm saying is it's not the right thing to do. Um, it just never is. And so many times we've been insulted, maybe not physically, but just with words. And, you know, if you've ever been there and, and, and somebody insults you and you just kind of get tongue-tied and you don't know what to say and you just walk away, and then, you know, then all of a sudden God gives you this wonderful thing that you could have said at the time and it would have been great comeback and everybody would have went, whoa, cool. But, you know, it didn't happen that way. And there's that kind of like that frustration. Well, what he's saying is, you know what, that never resolves the problem. It never takes the hurt away. It never makes you feel better when you just kind of respond. It may in the flesh, but really, it really doesn't. And the longer you hold on to the idea of retaliation, the more insult hurts. The more it hurts. And, and it just kind of, it's, it's like they're turning it in, putting the knife in you, and then you're kind of turning it around inside you. Remember a couple years ago, Ken, you were, those of you in golf remember this, when Tiger Woods won the Masters Tournament. And uh, Fuzzy Zeller got out there and, responded with some mean and kind of, some believe, racial remarks. And even though he intended those remarks to be funny, um, they were really mean-spirited. Uh, and and this, this golfer, Fuzzy, received a, a great deal of, some say, well-deserved criticism for his comments. And uh, Tiger Woods' response was this. When they asked him, they said, what do you think? You know, they were looking for some big response from Tiger Woods because this guy kind of insulted him in some ways. And he said this, you know what? We all make mistakes. 
it's time to move on. And that's the last time Tiger Woods talked about this issue. See? And, and what was he doing? He was taking that person's insult that was meant probably to hurt and to insult and to demean and to, to, to hurt him, you know, and, and instead of retaliating, he just said, let's move on, let's move on. And you know what? That's what Proverbs twelve sixteen says. It says, a prudent man overlooks an insult. See, when you're, when you're insulted, the best thing to do is to what? Just move on. Just move on. Don't go tit for tat. Don't go toe to toe. Just walk away and say, you know what, God? You know my heart. And you know, I definitely kind of have an idea what's in that person's heart, but I, I'm walking away. 1 Peter 3.9 says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. See, when you're insulted, don't waste energy thinking up ways that you can get even. But choose the alternative to revenge, that you can be perfect, that you can be mature in Christ instead, and you can be like your Heavenly Father, and you can even reach out and love that person. And that will probably even irritate him more. That's not why you do it, but that's what Scripture says. So that's the first thing, is don't respond with insult. Secondly, look at verse 40. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Second thing, do more than is required of you when you're making things right. All right, the first thing kind of talked about our dignity. This thing has more to deal with our security. See, you have to understand, in those days, a man typically wore two garments. They wore this inner garment called a tunic, which was kind of like a shirt, and then an outer garment, which was called a cloak, kind of like a coat. And the man would probably own more than one tunic, but only one cloak, unless you're really, really rich. And so a man's cloak was also used at nighttime. You'd take the cloak off off and you'd lay it down and you'd lay on it and wrap it around you for your your nighttime uh, uh, bed kind of thing. That's where they slept. And so when you're in a legal dispute with somebody, a creditor could sue a man for his tunic, the law said, but you couldn't sue him for his cloak because that was really a night and the coldness, that was their security. And that's from the Old Testament law. So if you take a, a neighbor's coat as a pledge... It even said, if you do that during the day, the law was that you had to return it to him by sunset. That's how important this cloak was, this outer garment, because it was the only covering that he had for his body. What else would he sleep in? You can see that in Exodus 22, verses 26 and 27. It talks about that. The only way a man could take your tunic from you was that if you had pledged your tunic as a security for debt and you hadn't paid the debt, and they could take your tunic. And so what he's saying here is if you have a debt that you haven't paid and you get sued as a result, what's he saying? Do more than is legally required of you to make the debt right. That's kind of what he's saying. A suit hopefully would never be necessary, but, you know, a man could pledge his tunic as a security for a debt and then the debt became due and whatever the problem was, maybe he couldn't pay that debt. And the lien on this tunic was, uh, or the lien on the debt was his, his uh, tunic. But Jesus says, you know what, if you mess up that process and someone has to sue you to get what they have coming to you, well, do more than what's required of you. Do more than what's required of you. Um, that was the spirit of Zacchaeus, you remember? The New Testament, when he became a devoted follower of Christ in Luke 19.8, he said, if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will repay back, I will pay back four times the amount. He didn't have to do that, but that's what he did. We need to follow Zacchaeus' example. If we offend someone, if we find ourselves to be in the wrong, we should always do more than is required to make things right. Maybe someone has something against you. Maybe it's not about money. Maybe it's something you did or something you said, whatever. Maybe you took credit for something that you shouldn't have taken credit for, whatever. They're, you know, you got this thing going on. Um, maybe you 
spread gossip about somebody and tried to ruin somebody's reputation, whatever it might be. If you've ever wronged anyone, what Jesus is challenging us to do here is to make full restitution and then some. Do more than what's required. Now, that's never an enjoyable experience. It's a very humbling experience. It's, it's much easier to love someone who has uh, wronged you than it is to humble yourself before someone you have wronged. Uh, that's just the case especially if you know that they don't like you. <laughs> it's not easy, but it's the right thing. It's the holy thing to do. And in, in so doing so, you're, you're showing yourself to be mature. You become like your heavenly Father, as Christ uh, talks about here. So another way to express love to your enemies is also to treat mistreaters with kindness. And in verse 41 there, he says, if someone forces you to go one mile... Go with him two miles. Um, you've all heard the phrase, you know, go the second mile. We've all heard that. <clears throat> when Jesus speaks these words, when he spoke these words, he was referring to the common custom of the day because they were being occupied by Roman authorities. Roman law basically gave a soldier the right to force a civilian to carry... Um, their pack or whatever they were carrying, for at least one mile. In other words, if you're a Roman soldier and you've got a pack you're carrying and you're just plumb worn out, you could just walk over to somebody and say, hey, you know what, you're carrying my pack. And they couldn't do anything. By law, they had to do it. You remember the, the uh, individual that they, they grabbed to carry the cross of Christ. You know, I'm sure he didn't run over there going, hey, I'll do it, I'll do it. <laughs> no, the Roman authorities just looked and said, hey, you, get over here, carry this cross. And he had to obey or he would have been under punishment of the Roman authorities. And so when Jesus spoke these words, he was speaking of this common custom that allowed a Roman soldier to force a civilian to carry his pack for one mile. Now, if you think about that, I mean, that would be kind of inconvenient. I mean, just think about it. If you were out during the day and say you were down at Safeway and... and, uh, you know, you're going to the shop to get some, some food or whatever, and all of a sudden a police officer comes over and says, hey, sorry, you've got to do this for me. For <laughs> People are like, what? You know, I'm busy. Leave me alone. Well, you didn't have that privilege back then. You had, to, you had to do it. And so it was very inconvenient to the civilians. Um, I'm sure that a lot of their business didn't get done because they were forced to drop everything they were doing just because some soldier wanted them to do something for him. And what Jesus told his followers, when that happens, instead of just walking the one mile, because that's an inconvenience, instead of just going one mile and carrying this guy's pack for one mile, there's no greater way to show God's love and to be kind to someone who hasn't treated you with kindness than to go the extra mile. You know what? Don't just walk one mile with a pack on. Walk two. Say, oh, it's one mile already up. I'm not even tired yet. I'll walk another mile with you, soldier. I mean, what would that communicate in that day and age? That would be something radically different. See, Jesus is speaking here of of a greater way to show God's love, and it's, it's to be kind to someone who hasn't treated you with kindness. If you have a job, I guarantee you at some time you will have the opportunity to put this into practice. Your boss may try to bully you, sabotage you, whatever. Take credit for the work that you've done. And you may be tempted down deep inside to try to get even or try to just get by by doing the bare minimum. In other words, you know what, I'm not going to bust my can anymore for this person because they don't even recognize when I do a good job. So, you know what? Forget it. I'm just going to do the bare minimum to get by. And I've seen employees in job situations that have become so resentful over their employees, over their employers and the way that they treat them um, and they've, they've gone to great lengths to calculate all that they can do, the very least, just before they get fired. They just want to do the bare minimum 
I remember when I was working in a fast frame over in Milpitas, the framing, picture framing company, and I just loved to do that work. And, and I remember being there all times, in the hour, nights, and everything. And sometimes we'd have these big orders come in for certain businesses and stuff, and, you know, we'd have to stay all night and, and build these frames and put them together with the glass and the mats and all that stuff. And uh, I was single at the time, so it was pretty easy on, on, on my life. So, But I remember working with a guy, just a really talented guy. And I remember at point time, points in time, he would become so frustrated because, you know, the owner of the, the business was a Christian, and, and he'd, he'd, you know, pay us well and, and that kind of a thing. But, you know, some of these things he'd tell us, hey, you, got, you guys don't have to work. Well, you know, I can't really afford to pay you overtime. You know, I know it's... You know, and, and we'd knock out the frames, and, you know, and I just didn't mind doing it. But this other guy, he always had a, a problem. And I remember seeing his, his work level just go down. Because his resentment built up inside of him. And pretty soon he was taking stuff from the business, thinking he owned it, or he, they owed it to him because, you know, they weren't paying him for this. And, and it just became a real problem. And that's what can happen when you allow that resentment to, to, to kind of build up inside you. And see, here he's saying, you know what? If they ask you to go one mile, go two. Go out of your way to treat them, even though they're, they're maybe abusing you in some way in your work situation. Go out of your way to treat them with kindness. If they demand an extra hour, give them two two hours. But in order to get the full effect of this, you have to understand that you have to do it cheerfully and you have to do it enthusiastically. Will your boss notice that you're doing this? Probably not. When you mistreat, uh, or, or when you treat someone who's mistreating you with kindness... Does that change them? Probably not. But you know what? It will change you. Because God will mature you. He he will make you a better person through that process. And you know what? In the end, God will honor you. It was interesting. At that picture frame shop, when it came time to give out the Christmas bonus at the end of the year, I mean, I think one year... Uh, and I think it was the same year that this guy was whining and everything, we both got a, like a $1,000 bonus as a result of our work. And I asked, what is this? Is this a mistake or what? You know, what's this for? I didn't even know what it was for. Well, you know, you remember those times you had to go work overnight and I couldn't pay you overnight. Well, I just thought, you know, hey, we had a good year. And, and I thought, wow, it came back around, you know. And that's how God works. God wants us to be obedient in those small things. A fourth way, quickly, is don't show favorites. In 42, he says, Give to one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. It's interesting that Jesus included this verse along with the verse that talk about how we should treat our enemies. (laughs) See? Uh, He did it because in this context, it's really what we need to hear it in. Um, Most of us are more than willing to give something to our friends, to our relatives, to help them out. Somebody we like. But see, Jesus says that's not enough. That's okay, but that's not enough. Jesus is saying don't be generous only with your friends, but help everyone you can. Practicing discernment and understanding. And, and, and that's, that's kind of an important point to make here. Um, and that's the way, you know, business works. I mean, we want to help those that we like and all that stuff. But Jesus is challenging his followers to go beyond that attitude, to be generous with the people we like as well as the people maybe we don't really care for, we don't really like. Um, And I think sometimes that's important. I I was reading a church (coughs) this last week that basically they they had a kind of an outreach to, to homeless people. And as a result of this, Outreach, they would bring people and, and, you know, they'd cut them a check or give them some money or some food or sandwiches or whatever and send them away. And that was fine. And the pastor began to scratch his head and goes, that doesn't seem right. You know, something's, we're missing something here. And so he encouraged his congregation to basically, when someone shows up at the doorstep, to, to help them out with food and all that stuff, but then also to plug them into one of their home cell groups and to get to know this person better. <laughs> And he said, you know, it, it was neat because some of these people needed a place to go in the middle of the week. And, you know, they, 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 well, they looked forward to it. They got a hot meal and they got to have some friends and fellowship and that kind of thing. And some of these people even came to Christ as a result of it. But he said, he goes, it was interesting because so many people in our church would prefer that we would just give them money and food and send them their way. Uh 
And when we tried to do more, there were actually people that opposed that. We don't want those people in our fellowship. We don't want those people coming to our church. I mean, okay, give them a hamburger. Give them some money. But, I mean, see, and, and that's, what, that's really what, what Jesus kind of is, is talking here. Don't show favorites. All right, when we're helping people, we need to help people kind of across the board. Obviously, bearing in mind, we have to practice discernment and all those things because we're to be a good steward of what God has entrusted to us. But I think it's important that we understand that that God's word is clear here, that we're not to be the norm. We're to be a little abnormal in these areas. And, uh, you know, you stop and you think the only person who could be non-defensive and non-vengeful and never bear a grudge and have no kind of spite in their spirit is a person who really has committed themselves to the grave, who has been willing to die to themselves. And that's what Christ says we have to do before we can come to Christ. He says, you know, when we come to Christ, we die to ourselves. It's not about us anymore. See, to fight for one's rights is to prove that self is still on the throne of the heart. The believer, the faithful follower of Christ, he lives for Christ. And if necessary, he even dies for him. Romans says. I read one quote in a a commentary and it said this, George Mueller wrote this, There was a day when I died, utterly died to George Mueller and his opinions, his preferences, his tastes, and his will. I died to the world, to its approval, its censure. I died to the approval or the blame of even my brethren and friends. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. See, that's really what Jesus is trying to get across to us in this passage of Scripture. Um, you know, we, we need to have this kind of a spirit that says, hey, you know what? It's not about getting my pound of flesh, having my rights fulfilled. It's not about that. It's about living a life that's honoring and glorifying to Christ. And we do that in a way that Christ kind of prescribes for us here. Is it easy to do? No, (laughs) it's not. That's why we need to rely on the Spirit to live through us and to do those things that He's called us to do. Next week, we're going to look at what it means to...